Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Having, having gone through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we now come to the second section of the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and that's verses 15 to 23. And we see Paul's prayer for the church. In verses 3 through 14, Paul praises God. He adores God. He blesses God for who he is and, and what he has done. Last week, we looked at verses 16, 15 and 16. And we saw that Paul begins his prayer by thanking God for the faith of the Ephesian congregation and their love for the saints. Now in the remainder of the chapter, verses 17 to 23, we will see the contents of Paul's prayer as he intercedes for his people in the church of Ephesus, or the congregation at Ephesus. Paul prays that God would uh, give them the desire to know more of God, to know the God who chose them, to know the God who predestinated them, to know the God who had lavished heavenly riches upon their lives, to know the God who provided a way of redemption and forgiveness of sins. And this is Paul's pattern in the book of Ephesians. He begins in, in chapter 1 by, by talking about all the riches that they have in Christ. And then he prays for them in verses 15 to 23. In a way, he's praying, Lord, help them to understand what I just taught them. He does that again in chapter 3. But before that, he, had, he speaks about man and who man is and the condition of man and the church. And then he comes to chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And he prays, Lord, help them to understand the truths that I just explained. We see Paul's reliance on prayer through the course of the writing of the book of Ephesus, Ephesians. Let me park here and give you a brief introduction to prayer before we get into verse 17. What is Prayer. Oral Dabney defined prayer as follows. He said, It is the offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Remember, prayer is the only form of communication available for a believer to cry out to God. Prayer is aligning our will with God's will. To say it again, prayer is dying to our will and letting God's will prevail in our lives. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. It's the most profound activity on planet earth. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our Master, He prayed to His Father in heaven. We read in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, at the moment of His baptism, Jesus was praying. After a day's ministry, Jesus in Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, He went up to the mountains to pray. We read in Luke chapter 6, he spent the entire night in prayer. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he woke up in the morning 
before even beginning his work, he went to a secluded place and he prayed. In Matthew chapter 26, right in the midst of his trials, Jesus prayed. If Jesus being God emphasized prayer, how much more should we be committed to prayer in our lives? No doubt, this is why the disciples asked Jesus. He said, Master, teach us to pray. Maybe you're wondering, God being God knows everything. Everything about you. Everything you need without even being reminded. Then why pray? To this, John Calvin responded, He said, prayer is not for God to be aware of our needs but to keep us oriented to God and to recognize the good that God has done for us. As someone said, prayer is the means God, sorry, the prayer is a means of grace God uses to keep us in his love. Prayer is the means God has ordained To accomplish his will here on earth. So yes, we need to pray. And we need to pray according to the will of God. But then we have another dilemma. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are depraved. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about it. Jeremiah chapter 17 talks about it. So what hope do we have to even ask God? For anything according to his will. Do we know his will? And if so, how do we know his will? We can only know his will through the absolute, inspired, inerrant word of God. So just having looked at prayer, I want to give you four aspects of prayer. First, the proper rule of prayer is the whole word of God. This is why we need to know the word of God to warrant our prayers. There's so much in the word on prayer that we would try to tunnel through it and yet not arrive at the other end in our lifetime. As we study God's word, we begin to have the mind of Christ and the more we have the mind of Christ, the more we are able to think biblically about prayer. The rule of prayer is the word of God. Second, prayer indicates our dependency upon God. It removes any form of self-sufficiency. Prayer in the New Testament was not an afterthought. It was a lifeline of the New Testament church along with the exposition of God's word. The early church first and foremost gave themselves to prayer, which indicated a true and genuine dependence on God. We see this in Acts chapter 2. Verses 42, we read that the believers were continually, continually devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the Bible says and to prayer. This is what the 120 people did in the upper room. As they were gathered, they prayed constantly or continually with one mind. It was an indispensable part of the New Testament church. They couldn't fathom a form of Christianity without the habit of prayer. It was so important to the early church that the apostle left 
the task of mundane day-to-day activities to other godly men in order to go and set aside time to prayer. Martin Luther, he said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer indicates our dependency upon God. Third, important developments happened in the local church as a result of prayer. What were they? Let me give you a couple of them. First, there was missionary outreach that came about as a result of prayer. Acts chapter 10, verse 9, as Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, God called him to take the gospel to Cornelius, to the house of Cornelius, opening up evangelism to the Gentiles. Second, deliverance from persecution came as a result of prayer. And we read about that in Acts chapter 12, that the church was fervently in one mind praying for Peter. And what happened? He was supernaturally delivered from prison. Third, we read in Acts chapter 13, We read that preachers, the pastors, the elders of the church were fasting and praying. And out of it came the selection of the missionary trip, the the missionaries for the first missionary journey. Fourth, prayer glorifies God. We read in Psalm chapter, Psalm 50 verses 1, uh, sorry, Psalm 50 verse 15. It says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. And you shall glorify me. This means we are to call upon God always. When we go through troubles, we need to cry out to the Lord. And the Lord answers our prayers. And he works in the lives of people. And Psalm 50 says, when this happens, it brings glory to God. Having looked at the developments that happen in the local church as a result of prayer. Let's come back to our aspects of prayer. I said, I'll give you four. The first one is the rule of prayer is the word of God. The second is prayer indicates our dependency of God. Third, developments happen in the local church as a result of prayer. And fourthly, we are to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Paul reminded us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. He said, pray without ceasing. Why? Because this is the will of God. It's an essential discipline in our Christian life. It's God's will for you. Reminder of prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. He said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Not praying for people is a sin. This is what Paul did. This is what the apostle Paul did in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 3, he prayed. And in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that you may know what's the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and what's the surpassing greatness of his power. So now let's come back to Ephesians 1, 17. We're going to take a look at Paul's prayer in verse 17. 
And let me read verse 17 for you. So if you have your Bibles, let's zoom in down to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Two implications arising out of verse 17. First, do you know God deeply? Verse 17a. Second, do you pray that others would know God deeply? Verse 17b. Let's look at the first one. Verse 17a, do you know God deeply? And it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He says in verse 16, he says, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on into verse 17. He says, praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't pray to Christ. He doesn't pray to the Holy Spirit. I mean, we can have fellowship with God. We can have fellowship with Christ. We can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But here we find that the Bible pointedly, clearly says that we are to address our prayers to God the Father. We pray to God the Father in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator who brings us to God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray as follows. He said, our Father in heaven. This is to whom Jesus prayed as well. We read in John chapter 11 and John chapter 17 that Jesus prayed to God, his Father. When Jesus was here on earth, Jesus referred to the Father as my God. In his humanity, Jesus trusted in the Father and prayed to the Father. The Apostle Paul in verse 17 is saying that he's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God that Jesus prayed to is the same God that the Apostle Paul is praying to. Paul couldn't think of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew the God of his salvation. This is what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that you may know the true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This relationship of a father is possible only through Jesus Christ. So if you say you know God, you have to know Christ. You cannot know God if you do not know Christ. This is why John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is God, and Jesus makes the Father known to us. It is through Christ, our mediator, that we have complete access to the Father. Let's keep going in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now, when you look at the Father of glory, this is the sum total of his attributes. Everything God does brings praise to his glory. We've seen that in verse 6 
of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, God chose us to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, he redeemed us and revealed God's eternal purpose to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. He's not only the glorious father, but he's also the father to whom all glory belongs. He's the source of all glory. Glory is a sum total of all his excellencies and perfections and attributes. God is glorious. And there is no way sinful creatures like you and I, who have rebelled against God, forever come to know him unless God did not reveal it to us or himself to us. God revealed himself to Moses through many events in the book of Exodus. Moses had seen the glory of God, the burning bush. He had seen the glory of God through the ten plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through the provision of food and water, through the wilderness experience at the tent meeting where God spoke with Moses face to face as the cloud of God's glory descended upon Moses. God revealed his glory to Moses, but Moses was still not satisfied. And he wanted God to show him his glory. So this time the Lord took Moses to the cleft of a rock and, and covered Moses with his hand and passed by. And the Lord would take away his hand and let Moses see his back. thus revealing God's glory to Moses. Would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 33 in the Old Testament the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 33, verses 19 through 20. We see there God speaking to Moses and God saying, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. Ever wondered why God uttered those words to Moses? Why is God saying I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy? The issue is about his glory. Shouldn't God have said, Moses, I'm glorious? Oh, look, I'm majestic. No. Instead, he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 18. Paul says... In the book of Romans, again he says, For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is writing this in reference to his teaching on God's election and predestination. God's glory is intrinsically tied to God's sovereignty. Do you see what God is saying in Exodus chapter 33? I'm sovereign. 
And God's glory is intrinsically tied to God's sovereign election, His sovereign right to show mercy to whom He wills. God's sovereignty is a reflection of God's glory. And we see the same argument in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul has just finished teaching us, as we've seen in the past weeks, on, on the glorious truths of the doctrines of grace. On election, on predestination. And Paul goes on to allude to this conclusion in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is also the Father of glory. In other words, everything that God does brings glory to God. Do you know the Father of glory? Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ in a saving way? Has he saved you? Maybe you've gone through Sunday school class. Maybe you've gone through church and you've been in church for many decades. And you may answer this question in the affirmative and say, yes, I know Christ. There's a difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ in a saving manner. Has he saved you? Have you come to the end of yourselves? Have you repented of your attempts to be righteous? Have you repented of your sins, your wild passions, your lusts, your idols? Have you believed in the gospel. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law of God perfectly, went to the cross voluntarily, took our sins upon himself, bore the wrath of a holy God for our sins, satisfying the just, justice of God. Have you put your trust in Christ's death on the cross for your sins? Christ did not remain on the cross. He died on the cross. He was buried. And he rose again the third day. And he ascended up into heaven. And he is coming again in glory. And at that time, he will judge the world. When you trust in Christ's saving work... God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to you. You no longer stand under condemnation. We read about that in Romans chapter 8. There's no more condemnation. But you have eternal life with God forever. So when Christ comes again, you will live with him forever and ever. Without knowing Christ in a personal manner. You will not know the Father of glory. You do not know God deeply. You cannot say, God is your Father. And the question that comes back to you is, do you know God deeply? In a saving way. Next, let's come back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. And the last half of it says, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We come to the second implication here. 
Do you pray that fellow believers will come to know God deeply? Do you pray that? Paul is praying that God may give to these people, the Ephesian believers, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, he said, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He wrote in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, you're easy to remember this. Philippians 1 9 and Colossians 1 9. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He is praying for fellow believers. Asking, this is a request, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The chief concern of the Apostle Paul is that people would come to know God, more about God, the Father of glory, through spiritual wisdom and revelation, that they would know God deeply. Let's understand the meaning of the word wisdom and revelation. The word wisdom means knowledge. It's not the result or the consequence of gaining knowledge. The Greeks sought after wisdom or knowledge. To them, the understanding or information of the world meant everything. It was worldly knowledge. But here we're talking about spiritual wisdom. Where is spiritual wisdom to be found? Do you want to know where it's found? I have an answer for you. It's found in the Old Testament book. Would you please turn with me to Job? Chapter 28, Job comes right before Psalms, so easy way to turn there. Job chapter 28, verses 12 through 28. Here's a question that was asked. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought, with, bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral of crystal or of crystal. The price of wisdom is about pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Look at the answer, folks. Where do you find wisdom? Where? Speak to me. Where do you find wisdom? The next word says that in verse 23. God understands the way of it, a way to it. And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, 
when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it, and he established and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Wisdom is found in God and God alone. The wisdom Paul talks about here is wisdom from God to know more about God. And we can find it no other source other than the word of God. It's through the Holy Spirit that we understand the word of God. Without the Holy Spirit, we will not understand the word of God. This is why the gospel is meaningless to the unbeliever. This is why when you proclaim the gospel, you pray to the Lord that the Lord would open the eyes of the blind, that they would understand the gospel. This is why even as I'm proclaiming God's word to you, there are believers in our midst praying that God would open the eyes of unsaved people, that they would know the gospel. It's not intellectual wisdom. It's God opening the eyes of the blind that you'd be able to understand God's word. Would you please read with me 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 7 through 10. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor hear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And so we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It is this wisdom or the wise unfolding of the word by the Holy Spirit that gives us insight to live our Christian lives. It's the ability to live one's life by having the skill to apply the gospel into our daily living. That we would have the wisdom to live correctly, to judge correctly, to discern well. It's the wisdom to apply God's word to our everyday living. That's what we do in biblical counseling. That's how easy it is to do biblical counseling. You can go alongside another believer and use the word of God with the wisdom that God gives you by his grace to equip them and show them how to use God's word, the wisdom of God's word to live a life for his glory. It's not rocket science. It's the gift of grace that God gives. 
Would you continue looking at verse 17? He says, he may give to you a spirit of wisdom. Let's zoom in right there to the word spirit. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it's in the lowercase. S, which refers to the human spirit. If you have an ESV, as I am reading out of, or an NIV, it takes a capital S or an uppercase referring to the Holy Spirit. Commentators are divided on whether the Spirit in verse 17 refers to the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. And I'm not going to take my time here to land on an interpretation other than it will help you understand what it means. We need to remember something really crucial. That you and I will not be able to understand, have knowledge, or understanding of God's word apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is the one who reveals the things of God to us. And we must pray that God would continue to reveal to us His wisdom and revelation. I think a reading of the Old Testament passage would help us narrow it down. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah comes before Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 2. And it reads, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a messianic prophecy. And Isaiah the prophet is saying here, as he's writing, he's saying that the Holy Spirit will rest upon the Messiah. And as a result of that, he will manifest a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So now we could come back to Ephesians 1.17 and conclude from here that the, the spirit there refers to the fact that, first of all, no one can ever come to the knowledge of God without the Holy Spirit. And Paul is praying here that once they have the Holy Spirit, once they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, as we looked in verse 13 and 14, once they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that they would have an attitude or a disposition or a manifestation of wisdom and revelation of the word of God that will govern their lives. That's what the spirit refers to. So Paul's prayer is that we would have a spirit that's able to comprehend and live by God's truth. That we would continue to be filled with the spirit. And that we would continue to walk in the spirit. Look with me in the next word. It's the word revelation in Ephesians 1.17. Revelation is the unveiling, uncovering, or exposing something that was hidden in the past. It's now being uncovered and revealed, previously unknown to man. And this revelation, again, we know can only be revealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Where do you find the revelation of God's word? Revelation of God's word is given to us in God's holy word. We do not have revelations other than God's holy word. 
No dreams or visions. That may be because you ate a lot of pizza the previous night. All revelations that we need to know has been given to us in the completed, infallible, absolute word of God. And we cannot understand this unless and until the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that very clearly. The natural man does not understand the things of God unless it has been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the last phrase in verse 17. In the knowledge of him. And I'll read it together so you get a proper perspective. I'm reading the entire verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The Greek word for knowledge is the word gnosis. But here Paul uses the word epignosis as a preposition epi. In front of the word Gnosis. It means an intimate and a personal relationship. It's, it's, it's experiential knowledge. A knowledge gained by experience. Not merely intellectual knowledge of the fact. But a heart experience. And so Paul is praying that the people in Ephesus. Would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And knowledge of God. Not just some superficial Intellectual understanding, but a heart-to-heart understanding, a heart experience. This is why I said in my second implication from verse 17, are you praying that other believers would know God deeply? Are you praying? Are you praying that they would grow in wisdom and revelation and knowledge of them? Knowledge of the word. It's not just enough to teach the word. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work in the lives of believers. That believers would manifest the characteristics of godly knowledge and insight in their spiritual life. Are you praying before coming to church? Are you? Are you praying for the ministry of God's word? For the proclamation of God's word? Are you praying like Paul, that Lord, as the word is proclaimed, that the word would penetrate the hearts and minds of people? What you got to see today would not have happened if you would not have prayed when these men heard the word. What you saw today is an answer to your prayer. That someone out here on that day was praying for these men. And God opened their eyes to the truth of God's word. And we see the fruit of it. As they step into confession and proclamation of the gospel. What's your prayer life like today? Are you given to prayer? Are you? Both in your personal life and corporate prayer. Or is it pathetic? Do you struggle praying? You struggle to sit down and pray. 
Is it cold and cumbersome for you to sit down and pray? Is, it, is prayer a boring activity? There are plenty of books that can help you even pep up your prayer. There's a book on Puritan prayers that can come meet me and I can help you with that. It's called The Valley of Vision. Dr. McCarter has written a book on prayer. You can take hold of that and just sit down with the book and, and just reiterate those prayers in your own life. Is prayer your go-to before you begin planning? Or prayer is an afterthought after you've done all your planning with your human wisdom? Coming back to the implications, do you know God deeply? Do you know God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Do you know him personally? Is he in control of your life? Is he the king of your life? There's no way you can say you know God if you do not know Christ in a saving way. Are you praying that others would know God deeply and not just intellectually? That they would know the God of the Bible. Not just the God of the Bible, but they would know the God of the Bible. And my prayer today is that you would find the grace, you would have the grace to apply these truths in your life and glorify the Father of glory. Father, we thank you for the privilege you give us, Lord, as we come together to corporately worship you, to study your word and exalt your name. We know we cannot do these things apart from you. It is you who enabled us, opened our eyes to the truth of your word, that we are even able to worship you. And Lord, as we continue to corporately worship you, we pray that you would do your work in the lives of people here. If there is any out here who's come into this church for the first time and they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, may this be the time, Father, for them to wrestle with these truths, that you would lead them to repentance, that they would cry out to you for salvation, And that they would know the Father of glory, the King of kings, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In, your name, in his name we pray. Amen.